Welcome to NephHacks, high-yield nephrology at your fingertips. This is your host, Andrew Kowalski. I'm the founder of NephHacks, and I'm also a practicing nephrologist. Please visit us at www.nephhacks.com. That's N-E-P-H-H-A-C-K-S dot com. Also, join us on our Facebook group where I'll be posting updates on our podcast as well as general updates in the field of nephrology. Let's get ready to make nephrology fun again. So I'm really excited that you guys are joining us uh, with me today. So this is my podcast series to complement the website. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to go over nephrology. I feel, as I mentioned in my intro, that nephrology is a very misunderstood field. It has a lot of stigma to it. But in reality, it's really cool. And I feel that if everyone gets a better appreciation of what nephrology is, then I think we're going to start appreciating what we can do. Um, In my opinion, I think nephrology will make you a better physician because since the kidney sees so much blood flow, it does interact with multiple organs and any organ that is affected is going to affect the kidney and vice versa. So we have all these different syndromes that are out there that we're going to talk about during this podcast series. Not to mention, when I was, I was on my hospital rotations this past week and we got into some really interesting discussions with some of the residents and the medical students and some of the talks that came up were a little baffling to me because they seem to be questions that are frequently repeated. And I don't find any fault in this just because this is how we're taught, right? I mean, there's going to be things that I say that some of you will listen to and be like, hey, I wasn't taught that or, hey, I never heard it from that perspective or whatever. And that's okay. That's what medicine is. Medicine is constantly evolving, constantly changing. And we do our best to try to be as evidence-based as possible. And that's what I'm going to try to be. So I'm going to try to be as transparent as I can. And if I'm saying something wrong, I really want to know about it because I want to present the best content to my listeners. That being said, when I was rounding with the residents and the med students this past week, I had a couple questions that came up and one of them was maintenance fluid. And I have my own views of what maintenance fluid is. I think it's beneficial in certain circumstances and I think in other circumstances it is anecdotal for the physician because we feel like we're doing something by giving them fluids. But in reality, do we really have to? And I think that's a very interesting question. Another one is algorithms. You know, we, we learn these algorithms through training because we need to, right? A lot of what we know and how we treat is based on algorithms. The problem is, is that algorithms don't work. And I know that's a big, you know, taboo thing, but they don't. Because the way algorithms are written, I would love to hear how many patients each of you will have that follow that algorithm to a T. They don't. Maybe you'll have one. It's never going to happen. And you always hear the phrase, you know, this patient presented textbook. It's, it's rare. It is. What algorithms are is it's a way to put all the information into some sort of sequential order so you don't get tripped up. That's what they are. The test questions are based on algorithms, so I highly encourage everyone to learn algorithms during your first, second year of training. But when you start progressing towards your second half of your second year into your third year, 
You put the algorithms aside and you start learning the physiology behind it. The algorithm works because of the physiology, but it's the physiology that we need to address. And a lot of times you can get to the same end point on the algorithm by skipping steps, by doing steps a little different. And we'll talk about this in detail, especially when I talk about hyponatremia and so forth. There's more than one way to get to the end. And algorithm is a great guide, but that's not how all patients present. And that's not always the best way to go about it. So do algorithms work? Yeah. Do they work every time? Absolutely not. So this is where the art of medicine and understanding what's behind it come into play. Another one that frequently pops up is you have a patient, the patient's on dialysis, and they get contrast because they needed a CTPE study or they needed to see, you know, some sort of vasculature or look at an abscess or whatnot. Do we have to dialyze this patient after a CT? And the answer is out there, and I'm going to share that on my future podcasts. We're going to talk about management of cardiorenal syndrome, and segueing off of that, we're going to talk about creatinine and how creatinine, in my opinion, is nice, but it's a terrible marker. Creatinine is not a marker of injury. Creatinine is a marker of renal filtration and flow. And I think once we can grasp our head around that, it's going to make a lot more sense on how we as nephrologists approach issues when we talk about AKI or we talk about CKD. Well, what do we do? We follow the creatinine. Well, you're just telling me that creatinine is not a marker of injury. It's a marker of flow. Yes. Creatinine is a nice tool. It's cheap. It's readily available. That's why we use it. But in reality, it's like trying to buy a house on Zillow and you take a picture of the front. It looks amazing, but what the website isn't showing you is the big hole in the back wall, right? So we use creatinine to guide us, but we use other you know, lab studies, biopsies, imaging, so forth, urine studies, to kind of get a whole picture of what's happening. So is creatinine going up? Is that bad? Not necessarily, but we'll get to that. So hopefully we'll be able to intertwine some of these, what I call soapbox talks in between these lectures. So I'm pretty excited about it, but let's hit the ground running. So we're gonna talk about renal physiology and let's start off with a good introduction. So the kidney, right? So in this introduction, we're gonna talk about major functions of the kidney. We're gonna talk about moving into what filtration is, what excretion is, little bit of the anatomy, and then we're going to dive into what each of the tubules do, okay? So the kidney performs basically two major functions, right? It participates in the maintenance of the extracellular environment, right, that's necessary for all cells and, you know, our organelles and therefore organs to function normally, right? And this is achieved by keeping us in balance, right? So there's excretion of waste products, of metabolism, and these are the waste products of urea, creatinine, uric acid, so forth, and a bunch of other ones we don't measure. The maintenance environment also includes water and electrolytes, right? And these are derived primarily from dietary intake, and the kidney manages that. And balance is the key term, right? The kidney wants to keep us in balance. So what we take in, the kidney wants to remove, 
They want it. The kidney wants to keep the good stuff and remove the bad stuff. We want to stay in balance. And that theme is going to be popping up when we talk about other pathologies because that balance line is going to change, right? At one moment, it's going to be set at X, might trickle up a little bit, might trickle down a little bit, but it's going to undulate around a set point. Sometimes that set point changes because of pathology and sometimes it stays the same. So, excuse me, excretion is the net intake, right? Plus the, exo uh, the endogenous, I'm sorry, production of everything that the body does, right? So net intake is basically everything we take in, right? It's what our body needs from a metabolic perspective, right? And the kidney dives into that. We talked about that with solutes because it regulates all the electrolytes, so the sodium, potassium, acid-base status, hydrogen, so forth. We have these tubules that do amazing things with reabsorption and secretion, so forth, okay? So the... One of the kidney's primary function is maintenance of the extracellular environment, and that is done through maintaining a balance or a steady state. So the kidney excretes, it's an excretory organ, and excretion is intake plus endogenous production. Secondly, which is frequently forgotten, is that the kidney is an endocrine organ. The kidney has hormones that it secretes, and the most famous being the RAS system, right? The renin-angiotensin-aldosterone um, system, right? And all these hormones in that particular component revolve around hemodynamics. So we're going to talk a lot about hemodynamics from the kidney perspective, from other systemic organs perspective, and so forth. Other things that are frequently forgotten is bone mineral metabolism, calcitriol, 125 dihydroxy uh, vitamin D. So the kidney basically takes the vitamin D that we get from the sun that we, you know, take in via food and converts it into a usable vitamin D. Now, there's studies that are out there that look at, you know, is it calcitriol or are the, you know, the other, you know, 25 uh, vitamin Ds that are important and are they important as cofactors and so forth. We're not going to dive into this right now, but we just kind of overview that the kidney is responsible for calcitriol, right? Finally, red cell production. The kidney is one of the major producers of erythropoietin and therefore um, production of red cells. Liver picks up the slack a little bit, especially when the kidney's struggling, but the kidney is the main component of that. And it also does a couple of other functions, right? The kidney has... Um, you know, it catabolizes, you know, peptide hormones. It's actually involved in gluconeogenesis. A small portion of sugar production is actually made by the kidney in extreme fasting conditions. Again, liver picks up the majority, just like the kidney picks up the majority of red cell production, but there is some dance that goes on between them. So let's talk about filtration and excretion a little bit more, okay? So we have a normal GFR. So what is a normal GFR? So normal GFR is basically 130 to 145 liters per day, right? That's 90 to 100 mils per minute in women, or 165 to 180 liters per day being 115-ish to 125 mils per minute in men. So on average, we say it's about 100. In reality, it's a little bit more. It's about 115, 120. Probably 115 is closer to you know, both if you're going to collectively group men and women together, right? 
And this represents a volume that is basically 10 times that of the extracellular fluid and 60 times that of plasma. So the kidney constantly filters, right? That's why. So when we talk about GFR, I want to take a little step back because there's been some changes in GFR. And we'll definitely talk about that moving forward in other um, podcasts. But we tend to inappropriately tell patients that their kidney is at a set percentage, right? You're at 10% function, 30% function, 40% function, right? And I want to just make it clear that we don't know what the percent function is. What we do is we take the GFR and we use that as a surrogate. The nice thing is, is that when the GFR hits 60 or below, it's much easier to explain to a patient that, hey, you're at 50% instead of, oh yeah, your kidney's working at 50 mils per minute. And then they sit there and scratch their heads and look at you and I don't know what that means, but okay, that sounds good, right? So 50%, 30%, that's kind of what we do. I, I usually preface saying that it's not the typical way that we look at things, but it's a nice way to understand it. And then the patients tend to kind of jive with it a little bit more. Right. So when we look at filtration, so let's get back to this. When we look at filtration, we look at what the kidney's main goal is. And the kidney's main goal is, is, you know, obviously excretion of waste and so forth, but hemodynamics, right? We want to keep the body in balance. So that's the main component. And what the kidney wants to do is it wants to prevent excess, excessive urinary sodium loss that's ex essential to the maintenance of plasma volume right? That's huge. That's its big thing. That's what we think about, right? The dogma of salt and water. The kidney keeps that, right? It keeps that dogma close to its heart. So the bulk of the filtered sodium, right, is reabsorbed in the proximal tubule, reabsorbed in the loop of Henle, but, you know, day-to-day -day regulation changes and so forth, and the final composition of urine is determined at the very end. So you have your filtrate that goes through the glomerulus, goes into the tubules, magic happens, urine is the end result. But when we think of it, we think of balance, we think of filtration, we think that the, uh, the kidney wants to conserve and it wants to eliminate what it doesn't need. So quick overview of the tubules. So when we talk about the tubules, each tubule is very unique in what it does. And we're gonna spend a little bit more time in the upcoming episodes about it, but I just wanna kinda of hammer down on this now. So the majority of filtered sodium and its reabsorption happens in the proximal tubule. On average, in steady state, we're looking at about 50 to 60% of everything that's filtered is gonna be reabsorbed right? The mechanism of entry of sodium is through the sodium hydrogen exchange. Um, so it's a, a co-transport with glucose. You have amino acids, phosphates, and other organic solutes as well. And this is where the bulk of everything gets picked up. Now, when the body is under hemodynamic stress, right? We have RAS, we have renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, and so forth. Angiotensin two basically kicks the proximal tubule into overdrive, right? It's like giving it a nice shot of gas. So what happens is the reabsorption in the proximal tubule tends to increase and can increase, you know, up to 70, 80, even 90% reabsorption. So most of what happens can happen in the proximal tubule, right? Loop of Henle picks up a lot as well. So in steady state, going back to that, so proximal tubule 50, 60%, loop of Henle about 30 
You know, it's a nice number, 30. Closer to 40, actually, but 30. We'll say 30. So that's huge, right? So when we think about it, we think about the impact of loop diuretics and what they can do. Well, if you knock out a section of the tubule that's responsible for 30% of sodium electrolyte reabsorption, you're going to have a pretty substantial diuresis. So loop diuretics are huge. They're super important. And we use them in a variety of pathologies. And we're going to dive into what are diuretics. And we're going to dive into the little nitty gritties and how I think about diuretics. And then finally, we look at the distal tubule, uh, the distal convoluted tubule. Roughly, you're looking at about 5 to 10%, right? This is your thiazide channel. You know, it's your sodium chloride co-transporter. And then finally, when you get into the collecting ducts and you start talking about your ENAC channel and aldosterone and where the drugs amylaride and triamterene work and so forth, you're looking at about 3 to 5% sodium reabsorption. So the majority is in the proximal tubule. The next big hitter is the loop of Henle and then the distal convoluted tubule towards the end. Okay. So going back, this entire regulatory system that the kidney has is quite impressive. So remember, we talked about that the kidney is capable of filtering volumes that is 10 times that of the extracellular fluid and 60 times that of plasma. That's quite impressive. So if you want to think about this and how impressive the kidney is, and when we talk about you know sodium reabsorption and maintaining hemodynamics, if you take a, a male and you say that the male has you know every nephron firing, right? So we got like maximum GFR, and we say that you know a male can typically at most filter about 180 liters per day, right, of plasma water sodium concentration, you know, bit. And if we say that the sodium concentration and the plasma is about 140 milliequivalents per liter, right? Basically, we're saying that this kidney is going to filter 25,000 milliequivalents of dietary sodium throughout the day. That's pretty impressive, right? And now you think about that the kidney, the intake is another 80 to maybe 250, depending if you have salty fries or not that day, right? So now we're looking at what the kidney sees and what the kidney retains and excretes is quite impressive. So more than 99% of filter sodium ends up being reabsorbed to remain in balance. That's incredible. Because remember, at 180 liters per day, right, so a GFR of about, you know, 125, 130 mils per minute, that's 25,000 milliequivalents of sodium. That's tremendous, and 99% of that has to be reabsorbed, right? So basically, when you look at your entire kidney and what it does, at the end of the day, less than 0.1% of sodium ends up being lost in the urine. That's impressive, in my opinion, on what the kidney can do. I think that's quite impressive. So let's take a step back now and let's take a look at the kidney as a whole, right? Let's look at the morphology of the kidney. So the gross exam of the kidney is nothing more than an orange, if you want to think about it. All the magic that happens in the kidney happens in that orange peel, which is the cortex, right? And then the renal pyramids, that's the pulp of the orange. So if you take the orange and you cut it up into a nice little triangle segments, that orange peel, that's your cortex. The rest is your medulla right? 
So blood supply to the kidney is via the renal artery, right? Or arteries, you might have more, and it's drained via the renal vein, right? And as the blood flow enters the kidney, it's broken down to smaller and smaller arterioles. And then finally, you end up with your afferent arterial, which gets into your glomeruli, right? That's where filtration happens. You have your efferent arterial. And then the efferent arterial continues down to the vasa recta and supplies blood as well as a absorption to the countercurrent mechanism going down into the medulla. But it doesn't supply blood to the medulla. It stays within that vasculature. So the blood and what feeds the kidney is all in the cortex because this, these are the cells that require oxygen. They have high oxygen demand, right? These cells are churning out. I mean, we just talked about how the kidney is responsible for 99% of sodium reabsorption and less than 0.1% excretion. That's a lot of work that the kidney has to do. So it consumes a ton of oxygen. That being said, if you take a probe and you stick it to the inner portion of the kidney, it's quite interesting because in a normal individual, the O2 saturation is low. It's around 50% or less. So it's no surprise that if you have any sort of hemodynamic instability, you know, from an MI to a hypertensive or hypotensive crisis, sepsis, whatever the case may be, the kidney is going to be the first to show signs of injury and it's going to be the last to recover. So as important of an organ as it is, it's kind of a puny organ in that sense. So when you look at this orange peel, the orange peel is roughly about a centimeter in thickness. And when we talk about the cortex, I think it's important to think about imaging. So the big thing that we as nephrologists like is we like a renal ultrasounds. And when we look at a renal ultrasound or we read the report of a renal ultrasound, there's two things that are typically talked about. One is the cortical thinning or lack thereof, and two is the echogenicity. So the cortex, if all the magic happens in the cortex and all the tubules are piled into that cortex, well, if you have cortical thinning, then to me that means that the meaty portion, the plumpness of it is gone, you have scar tissue formed, and everything's atrophied down, which is the case. So if you see cortical thinning on a ultrasound report, you know for a fact that there is long-standing kidney disease. You're not going to see this in an AKI. On the flip side, if you look at renal echogenicity, so this talks about scar tissue as well. The problem with it is a lot of it is operator dependent and it compares the kidney to the liver. So assuming the liver is non-fatty, super healthy and so forth, yeah, you're going to get a decent reading. But if the liver has any sort of fatty infiltration to it and so forth, well, the grayscale of the liver changes, and therefore any sort of echogenicity change in the kidney might be read as normal. So I always take that with a grain of salt, but cortical thinning I think is very important. So when we look at this cortex, so the nephron being the basic unit of the kidney, each kidney has about 1 to 1.3 million nephrons, right? That's impressive. So you have two kidneys, two to 2.6 million nephrons. That's quite a bit, right? And what the nephrons are is you have your glomerulus, you have your proximal tubule, you have your loop of Henle, which then leaves the cortex, dips down into the medulla, comes back up, and then back into the cortex, you have the distal convoluted tubule, and then part of the collecting duct, which then also dips down into the cortex.
pulling it a little bit, what we see is that the vasculature of the kidney. So you have the renal arteries and the renal arteries deliver blood to the kidney. So what we see is that these blood vessels run into the kidney and they give rise into all these branches. So between the cortex and the medulla, you have these blood vessels that run parallel. These are the corticomedullary junction vessels, also known as the arcuate vessels. These arcuate vessels then give off branches to the intralobular arteries, which then penetrate the cortical, I guess, labyrinth, if you want to put it that way, and give rise to these afferent arteries that we talk about, which then leave the glomerulus as efferent arteries and then the vasorecta and so forth. So honing in on the glomerulus, as we just mentioned it, I think the glomerulus is a very interesting organ, organelle, but it's not the be-all end-all when we talk about kidneys. So when I was a resident, I was quite impressed many times where we saw a biopsy, it was a great biopsy, we had all these glomeruli and so forth, but they're all scarred or a good chunk of them are scarred. I mean, we're talking 70%, 80% scarring of the glomerulus. And the person's kidney function is not great, but it's not terrible either. So what's going on? Like if the glomerulus is key, I mean, we're talking about this is the filter that makes everything happen. Well, yes and no. So yes, the glomerulus is involved in filtration and you have this ultrafiltrate, which then passes into the tubules, but that's the key. It's what's in the tubules that happens. So going back to the biopsy, what I also thought was interesting is when we talked about IFTA. IFTA is interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy. You would see somebody with 10 to 20% IFTA and their creatinine is bumped up, but it's not terrible and almost all of their glomeruli are scarred over. Then you see somebody with minimal glomerular scarring, but their IFTA interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy is substantial. We're talking 40, 50, 60%. Well, these people are a sneeze away from being on dialysis. The, glomerula, the glomerulus looks fine, but it's all the interstitium. And if you think about it, if we're talking about the cortex and everything happens in the cortex, well, now you have all this you know, scarring that envelops these tubules. Well, think about it. If you have scarring that envelops the tubules, what happens everywhere else in the body with scar tissue, right? chokes off the area that it surrounds, limits blood flow to the area. Now you have cell death. And now instead of having these tubules that process this ultrafiltrate to make urine become nothing but conduits or lack of a better term, PVC piping that leads all the way to the collecting duct and therefore becomes your quote unquote urine. So these are the individuals that need help with clearance. So these go to dialysis. You know, they don't need a volume or they don't, I should say, they don't have a volume problem because their glomerulus is still filtering. They just can't process it. They can't pull out all the good stuff. They can't dump in any of the bad stuff because there's a clear-cut separation because of this scar tissue and these tubules become conduits. Nothing can cross it, and they put out volume, but they're not getting rid of all the daily metabolic waste that happen. So that's something to keep in mind. So going back to the glomerulus, so you got these tuft of capillaries are jammed up together. They're put into this sac called the Bowman's capsule, and you got everything there. And how do they stay in that sac? The mesangium. So 
It was one of those like things that made me cringe when I was in residency. Like, oh, I got to remember about the mesangium. The mesangium. Well, the mesangium is actually pretty important, right? It actually does a lot. And I think we're learning more and more about it. So the mesangium is a matrix of these connective tissue and connective tissue cells. And what it does is it has phagocytic properties. It has contractile properties. It synthesizes extracellular matrix proteins, and it has receptors that respond to a broad range of chemicals. Oh, that's quite a bit. So the mesangium is involved in a lot of homeostasis and hemodynamic properties in the kidney. It's quite impressive. What it also secretes is some of the key inflammatory and fibrinogenic cytokines. Right? We're talking about platelet-derived growth factor, we're talking about uh, TGF-beta, we're talking about metalloproteinases. And these um, cytokines actually are released when we have quote-unquote renal injury. And we'll get into this on one of the theories of what happens is that the kidney self-sabotages to stop blood flow and allow blood flow to be diverted to key organs, i.e. heart and brain. Yes, I said that the kidney is not necessarily the keyest organ in the body, but it is pretty flippin' important. Part of this uh, mesangial bit is in between the afferent and efferent arterioles, you have this macula densa. That's actually pretty cool too because that kicks off the big hemodynamic cascade that we have in our body. It has two methods of action. It senses flow and it senses chloride composition. So we'll talk about how it works later on. But poor flow or poor, I guess, exposure to or receptor stimulation of chloride leads to renin production. And then you end up having your entire cascade of angiotensinogen going angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2, angiotensin 2, causing massive proximal tubule Sodium reabsorption, remember we said that, that it can bump up even to 90%. It causes systemic vasoconstriction, and it also taps aldosterone on the shoulder, I should say, taps the adrenal gland on the shoulder to secrete aldosterone, leading to that last bit in the collecting duct to cause sodium and water reabsorption. So let's talk about the ultrastructure of the glomerulus. So we have these podocytes, right? So these tuftive capillaries are enveloped in this glove, right? And these are the podocytes. These are the epithelial cells that wrap around the capillaries. And they have these long dendritic projections. And these dendritic projections have little spines on them that interdigitate together. So this is what we talk about when we talk about the slit diaphragm and the foot processes and so forth when we look at a EM um, cross-section. So these spaces, they vary in size. They can vary between 25 to 60 nanometers. So not crazy, um, but big enough where, you know, albumin could or other proteins could slip through if they have to. But there's something that's really cool that happens. We'll talk about that in a second. Another thing that's really interesting is that when you have plasma flowing through the glomerulus, only about 20% ends up being removed as filtrate, right? And enters the Bowman space as this ultrafiltrate and passes into the proximal tubule to be on its way to be processed to become urine. And that's not a lot. So when you think about it, cardiac output will 
derive, well, I should say cardiac output will give the kidney about 20% of its volume. So each beat, 20% of that is going to hit the kidney. That's, you know, quite a bit, right? You're looking at probably about a liter, a little over a liter per minute. That's a lot, right? So out of that, only 20% of that ends up becoming filtrate. So why is that? Why don't we get more? Well, one, I mean, the kidney would probably have to be a much bigger organ to deal with all that reabsorption that has to happen. And you're probably going to be running into the bathroom a lot, so you're going to have to have a much bigger bladder. But it has to do with the pressure gradients. So just like in cardiology, we learned about hydrostatic and oncotic pressure. We have the same thing happening in the glomerulus. We have this hydrostatic pressure that's squeezing the filtrate out. We have oncotic pressure that's trying to pull that filtrate back in. And then we have the Bowman space pressure trying to push fluid back in. So when you look at what's being pushed out via, and take that against what's being pulled or pushed back in, the difference is only about 10 millimeters of mercury. Not that much. I mean, take a blood pressure cuff, put it around your arm, and just give it maybe about a squeeze or squeeze and a half, and you're probably already shooting up to 20 millimeters of mercury. It doesn't take a lot of pressure to generate filtrate. On the flip side, then it's not surprising that having any sort of obstruction or a pseudo-obstruction, right, or I should say, not a pseudo-obstruction, let me take that back, a um, partial obstruction where it lowers that pressure gradient, right, from 10 to five to three to nothing or even the opposite to stop filtration, right? Little bit of urine backup, having that backup in the ureter up that column, you're not gonna have any filtration. You relieve the, um, the obstruction and all of a sudden filtration happens and then you have this dumping syndrome. So it doesn't take much. So when we look at filtration, we have to talk about the, the basement membrane, right? So the basement membrane, and if you can picture with me, you look at the uh, electron microscopy cross-section, right? So you're looking at it and then you see the capillary space and you got this like smudgy, you know, schmutz that's floating around, right? That's supposed to be your plasma and so forth in your blood. And then you have your little dots, which is your uh, cross-section of your capillary fenestrations. And then you see this sandwich. So you have this heterogeneous grayscale that is attached to the endothelial cells or the capillary fenestrations. You have this slightly darker heterogeneity running all the way through. And then you have another lighter on the other side. So it looks like a sandwich. And the lighter portion attaches to the epithelial cells. So that's the basement membrane. And this is what everything has to cross to leave the capillary and get into the tubule. The basement membrane is actually pretty interesting because uh, the basement mem membrane and the podocytes are coated by these um, glycoproteins. And these glycoproteins prevent charged substances like albumin because they're themselves negatively charged and as albumin, so they repel each other, right? Which is pretty interesting. So when you look at size-wise, the fenestrations are pretty big. They're greater than 70 nanometers. And we talked about that the slits, right? The slit diaphragms are between uh, 25 and 60, give or take. So the fenestrations are huge. A lot can get through. And it's that um, those glycoproteins that basically stop everything from happening, or I should say from crossing. So throwing a little bit at the podocyte, we're not gonna touch too much on this right now. We're gonna dig into this when we talk about other pathologies, but 
Podocyte is very interesting. We started learning a lot in recent years about the Podocyte, and I always had a big question as to why does, you know, why on a normal kidney you have this great EM image and you have these podocytes and you have these nice spaces and you have these fenestrations and these nice spaces and you can clearly imagine seeing filtrate course through and you have this you know magic you know layer of you know negatively charged glycoproteins that prevent everything else from coming through and it it's you know it has this nice image and then you see this image of effacement and it almost looks like this giant wall that's blocking the filtrate from passing through but yet, this is where you have not only filtrate passing through, but all your other proteins. So what happens? So it has to do with the, with the architecture, or I should say the scaffolding of the podocyte. So if you want to think about it this way, think of the podocyte as being like a tent, right? You're putting up a tent. The, you have actin and myosin that play active roles and other proteins as well. But, you know, actin-myosin has its own mutations, and that's part of FSGS2. We'll get to that, you know, later on. But you have this architecture, the scaffolding or these tent poles, how, whatever analogy you want to use. And now you disrupt that integrity, right? The poles don't attach properly, or you pull one of the poles out. What's going to happen? Well, the whole tent's going to collapse, which is exactly what happens in nephrotic syndrome. So you damage the scaffolding, and it could be from a number of places. It could be from where the tent pole enters into the ground. It could be where it enters into the bottom portion of the tent. So that could be the lower portion of the podocyte that's touching the basement membrane. It could be, you know, it, it could be one of those tents that's not a typical TP tent, but you know, like a camping tent that fits like more than five people to it. So it, it's bigger, so you have multiple um, support structures. And it could be where you have the main support structure of the dome or the support structures that crisscross over. So there's many, many places where you can have damage where the pole loses its integrity and the entire podocyte falls apart. What is really interesting is that we started to know what some of these proteins are. Some of the main ones that attach the inner scaffolding to the inner scaffolding of the adjacent podocyte, and it actually partakes in being part of the slit diaphragm, are some of these proteins. Nephrin being the most popular one that we've learned, and I even learned in med school, and I probably learned the rest of these that I completely forgot until fellowship. But you have Nef1, you have Nef2, you have P. cadherin. Podocin. These are all these integral proteins that attach to the architecture of the podocyte and then attach to the architecture of the adjacent podocyte. Nephrin being the popular one because nephrin was described as being the mutated protein that is involved in congenital nephrotic syndrome of the Finnish type. So this was the case where you had all these babies in Northern Europe that were being born with protruding abdomens, um, periorbital edema, profound proteinuria, and they were found to have a mutation in nephrin. And what happens is the podocyte loses its integrity. Once the integrity is lost, everything falls apart, right? The tent collapses. Anything from the, um, the glycoprotein, uh, the calyx that happens, the negative charge, everything falls apart. So it's huge. So having these scaffold proteins and having this dance between all these interactions is key. And you can see how just having one component fall apart has the entire structure fall apart.
So talking a little bit about um, nephron anatomy, now we're pulling the microscope back, we're going back to global. We talked about a little bit of the vasculature and we already hinted at what's in the cortex, what's in the medulla. I just wanted to hammer in a few more points. So we have these key structures that are in the cortex, which is where quote unquote, all the magic happens. And then you have what dips down into the medulla and this is the loop of Henle, right? It's the only structure that crosses that um, cortical medullary junction and passes down into the medulla. And you have a loop of Henle basically has three parts. You have the thin descending limb, the thin ascending limb, and the thick ascending limb. And you have a long loop of Henle and you have a short. The long one, there's not many of them that are around, but they're critical and maximum urinary concentration. And we'll get to that when we talk about how urine is concentrated, especially in pathologies like hyponatremia and so forth. And then you have the short loop of, Hen uh, loop of Henle, which really don't have that much of a thin ascending limb. That's pretty much the difference between those. So as we wrap up, let's talk about some common glomerular pathologies or nephron pathologies since we're talking about more of the structure of what we see. So brief overview, we'll obviously get to this later. We're gonna talk about nephrotic syndrome, we're gonna talk about nephritic syndrome or nephritis, and we're talking about other structural components. So nephrotic syndrome, so this is where we have damage to the glomerulus. We have proteinuria, which is greater than three and a half grams per 24 hours. Therefore, you have a hypoalbuminemia. You have generalized edema, and you have dyslipidemia, or otherwise characterizes hyperlipidemia, right? And what ends up happening is you have increased filtration of plasma and proteins across this glomerular capillary. And this is because you have an increase in the size of the pores, because you have loss of the structural integrity. Remember, the tent falls, everything gets flattened. And another way to think about it is when we talk about the interdigitations, think about having the interdigitations just kind of spread out and like fall out or even curl up, right? So they lose their integrity and now you have these big chiasms, if you want to put it that way, that now are your slit diaphragm. So you're going to have a lot more pouring through. So you lose the integrity of the negative charge of the barrier. You start losing these proteins, leads to hypoalbuminemia, which leads to a decrease in oncotic pressure, leading to edema, right? And now you have this low oncotic pressure and the liver doesn't like it, recognizes it, and starts cranking out as much protein as possible. But with that, it starts cranking out lipids. So that leaves you to hyperlipidemia, and one of the pathognomonic features of nephrotic syndrome is seeing Maltese crosses on a urine microscopy, meaning when you look at the urine under a microscope, you're going to see these droplets of lipids that form together, and they look like the Maltese cross. Nephritis, a little bit different. This is inflammation, right? So this isn't architectural integrity loss, this is just badness happening. So you have blood pouring through. You have dysmorphic RBCs when you look at them under a microscope. You might have decreased urine output, so oliguria. Hypertension, right? You're gonna have a drop in your glomerular filtration rate. 
also adding to your AKI, in other words, right? So nephritis is glomerular inflammation leading to a breakdown of all the integrity, filtration barrier, you know, the podocytes, everything. And you have leakage of not only proteins, but you have leakage of RBCs and this inflammation, right? Because what's right there? You have the macula densa, right? So you have this inflammation, you have this crowding, this cramping, this damage, all these mesangial cytokines that are being released at the same time, you're going to have a decrease in urine volume. You're going to have a change in your hemodynamics. This is where you get your hypertension and so forth that happen from it, right? Some key features is you're going to have um, RBCs that leak into the tubules. They start coursing through. They end up getting stuck in the loop of Henle, right? And the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and the TAMS horsefall proteins that are the tubular proteins that are formed end up forming um, this marriage of RBCs and they form these casts. So TAMS horsefall proteins. So these tubular proteins, they're secreted, they're floating around in there. They get stuck to these stuck RBCs and you have these casts that form. And then you also have dysmorphic RBCs, right? You have this inflammation damage. You have a breakdown of your quote unquote coffee filter, your glomerulus, whatever you want to call it. And as it's squeezing through, you start getting these little blebs that pop out, right? It's like a misshapen um, balloon, right? You blow up a balloon, you try to dis you try to mess with it and press it and compress it, and it has all these little protrusions. You deflate it, you inflate it again. What happens? The protrusions come back, right? So you already you know have these dysmorphic shapes that happen, and then you have so you have loss of the architecture. You have inflammation, which is damaging everything, right, from the inner to the outer. And now you have your basement membrane dysfunction. So type 4 collagen. Type 4 collagen is huge, right? So type 4 collagen, you have three alpha chains, which form a triple helix, right? And then you have specific interactions with C-terminal, with the C-terminal of non-collagenous domains, right? So this gives it that structural integrity of the basement membrane. Okay, so the membrane collagen, you have alpha three, four, five chains, right? And the, you have two disease processes that attack this. You have good pastures and you have L-port. So good pastures is where you have an anti-glomerular antibody that attaches to the alpha three chain of the type four collagen, right? leading to destruction and loss of integrity of the basement membrane there. And the patient presents with nephritis and what? Hemoptysis because you have type 4 collagen in the lung. L-port syndrome is a little bit different. So this is also where you have alpha 3, 4, 5 chain uh, subtypes in the type 4 collagen. And 80% of L-port syndrome is due to mutation in the alpha 5 chain. Okay. And it's the commonest inherited form of nephritis that's out there, and it's associated with what? Sensory neural deafness and ocular abnormalities. You have slippage of your lens, right? Now, what also happens is you can have what's called thin basement membrane disease, where it's not necessarily a full-fledged mutation in your type 4 collagen, but you have a partial mutation, so the basement membrane is a lot thinner, 
And if you're thinking about it, it's like a thin barrier protecting against a bigger, what do you want? What analogy do you want to use? You want to use paper stopping a ball and then you have wet tissue paper stopping a ball, right? So you have paper that's thinner, less integrity, more things are going to go through. That's basically what happens, right? But going back, Elport syndrome, sensory neural deafness, ocular abnormalities, because there's similar alpha 3, 4, and 5 chains of type 4 collagen in the basement membranes of the lens, as well as the cochlea. So you're going to start having all those dysfunctions. So we review some pathology, we review some, uh, some gross anatomy, some structure and function. On our next podcast, we're going to talk about the tubules and how the magic happens. And we'll throw in a couple of my little soapbox talks. Thank you for very, uh, very much for joining me on this podcast. Listen to it as much as you want. I look forward to hearing some of your comments. And please forgive me of my nasally voice. Allergies have not been kind to me this year. And especially in the last couple of weeks with all the high pollen counts and so forth, I'm having a struggle breathing. So I have a nasally voice. So I apologize. Hopefully, as the winter months move forward, I'm going to start feeling a little bit better. And my voice might change a little bit for the better. But please remember, if you want more information and you want more nephrology education, please go to www.nephacks.com. That's www.nephacks.com. Thank you very much, and I'll be seeing you on the next podcast.